uh, in there. Um, it's probably unusual to begin an Advent series in Romans, um, but that's what we're doing today um, because it shows us Jesus, and so we'll talk about why that is here in just a moment. Um, if, in case you weren't listening to me thus far this morning, sorry, this thing's fighting with it here. Bryce has fatter ears than I do. Um, in case you weren't listening to me thus far this morning, um, today is the first Sunday of Advent. And I think everybody here uh, has been here for an Advent season. Um, but if not, um, you know, Advent is uh, not always celebrated in uh, every, you know, every Christian tradition. But it's simply the period of uh, four weeks before Christmas where we remember uh, that Jesus is coming, but we also try to emphasize the waiting and the longing. Um, and so we celebrate that Christ has come. And we remember and we anticipate his uh, coming again. And so in case you forget that it's Advent, we have a visual reminder um, in the Advent candles. And so over the next five weeks, we're going to take this time right before the sermon to light the traditional Advent candle for the week. Uh, then we're going to read, I'll, I'll read a prayer that's related to the theme of that Advent candle for that week that was written by a guy named Porter C. Taylor at a place called St. David's Institute. That's me not plagiarizing, so this is uh, Porter Taylor. Um, anyway, uh, each of the candles on this, uh, what's called an Advent wreath on the table in front of me, represents something specific that we celebrate during this Advent season. You'll see that they're in a circle. That circle represents God's never-ending love that he showed to us by sending Jesus to the earth. The four candles represent the four Sundays before Christmas Day, um, one each representing hope, peace, joy, and love. The three purple candles represent the royalty of Jesus as the Son of God and the King of our lives. The one pink candle represents the joy of having Jesus in our lives. And uh, the white center candle is the Christ candle. It represents the purity of Jesus. And then the light that the candles themselves give reminds us that Jesus himself, or that he called himself the light of the world. And so today uh, is the first Sunday of Advent, and on this day we light the first candle in our Advent wreath, uh, the candle of hope. Our hope is in the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, and our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. We put our hope in Jesus, the faithful Israelite, who is restoring and reconciling all things. Uh, bow with me, if you will. Gracious Father, kindle in our hearts such a desire for you and your saving works that the flame may never be put out. Guide and direct us as we prepare our hearts to both celebrate the birth of your Son and look forward to his second coming. We long for the day with hope-filled expectation when you will put the world to right. And we thank you for giving us the hope of glory. Amen. By the way, if a gust of wind blows anything, just let me know if there's a fire. I need to know. Okay, I can't see it, so I need to know. Just, I don't know what the signal is. Just yell out fire, I guess. So uh, I'm excited about Advent. Happy Advent, everyone. Uh, today uh, is the first day of this season. Um, and again, Advent is a, is a period of joyful anticipation in these weeks leading up to Christmas. We like to acknowledge this season of Advent each year at Vintage because we want to use this heart to prepare ourselves to as the song said, let every heart prepare him room for the celebration of the birth of Christ. 
The word Advent simply means coming or arrival. And so it's our hope that through this Advent season uh, and these sermons uh, around this Advent season, we hope that they will indeed prepare your heart to celebrate the wonder of the coming of Jesus. Both the first time, about 2,000 years ago in the manger in Bethlehem, uh, but also in anticipation as we know that he will come again. He will consummate his victory. He will make all things new. And so when we sing, come thou long expected Jesus, When we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, we're not just looking back. We're looking forward uh, for Christ will come again. You know, a couple of months ago, we were thinking about what we wanted to do uh, to preach during this series because we typically uh, kind of take an interruption from our, our regularly scheduled programming, which we're in the middle of First Peter right now, uh, and we, we set aside a few weeks for Advent, and I was listening to this new uh, Keith and Kristen Getty album, uh, which by the way, the name of that album is Christ Our Hope in Life and Death, uh, which we just sang a moment ago, and I heard another song on that album that kind of stuck with me, and that's the other song that we introduced today, uh, Christ the True and Better. I really loved how that song showed how these different Old Testament figures point specifically to Jesus. And so when we were talking about what we wanted to do for Advent this year, I thought of that song. And I thought it would be a kind of a cool way to frame our Advent sermon series. Now we know that Keith and Kristen Getty aren't the inspired writers of scripture. Uh, but they did uh, write very scriptural lyrics uh, that uh, Matt Boswell and Matt Papa sang for us. Um, and so I thought it would be a cool way to, to sort of frame this series. We've taken a lot of different approaches to our Advent sermons each year. We typically do look for some way to show how all of Scripture points to the coming Messiah. And you may have noticed that song isn't specifically like an Advent or Christmas song, which good news means we can sing it year-round and it not be kind of weird. Um, but it does do a really good job of reminding us how this, the, really the whole story of Scripture is the story of Jesus. Uh, the Messiah who was promised and who then came to rescue us and who is coming soon to make all things new. And so it is our hope this year that in the weeks leading up to the celebration of the birth of Christ, that we can spend some time dwelling on how, not just for this Christmas season, but really if you look at the entirety of the scriptures and really the entirety of the Christian life, the whole thing is Christ alone. He is our hope in life and in death, as we just sang. He is our joy and our righteousness. Christ is the wonderful counselor, the everlasting father, the prince of peace, the mighty God. He is the absolute center of our faith and of our lives. And so as we celebrate all that Jesus is this season, may these sermons renew our wonder that Christ has come, the humbled God incarnate, to rescue us. And he is coming again, church. He's coming again soon. When I was uh, preparing this sermon, um, I came across this long Tim Keller quote. Uh, I'm guessing this Keller quote was probably the inspiration for this song. If not, uh, Keller, you should sue Keith and Kristen Getty because they plagiarized you a bit. Um, But I'm pretty sure they're friends, and this is probably the inspiration for the song. I posted this yesterday on Facebook, but if you didn't see that, I'd like to read it to you. It is kind of a long quote, um, but it does help us see how... All of the Old Testament points to Jesus, and there's a lot more than just the four, the four guys we're going to look at um, in the, uh, through this series. There's a lot more in here. So this is Tim Keller. Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel who, though innocently slain, has blood that cries out for our acquittal, not our condemnation. 
Jesus is the true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave the comfortable and familiar and go out into the void not knowing whither he went to create a new people of God. Jesus is the true and better Isaac who was not just offered up by his father on the mount but was truly sacrificed for us all. God said to Abraham, Now I know you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from me. Now we can say to God, Now we know that you love us because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from us. Jesus is the true and better Jacob who wrestled with God and took the blow of justice we deserved so that we, like Jacob, receive only the wounds of grace to wake us up and discipline us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph, who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his new power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses, who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better rock of Moses, who, struck with the rod of God's justice, now gives us water in the desert. Jesus is the true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer who then intercedes for and saves his stupid friends. Jesus is the true and better David whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is the true and better Esther who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace but lost the ultimate heavenly one who didn't just risk his life but gave his life to save his people. Jesus is the true and better Jonah, who was cast out into the storm so we could be brought in. Jesus is the real rock of Moses, the real Passover lamb, innocent, perfect, helpless, slain, so the angel of death will pass over us. He's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, the true bread. The Bible's really not about you. It's about him. So with that in mind, this week's sermon is entitled, Christ, the True and Better Adam. And the lyrics that we sang earlier of that first verse uh, to that new song say, Christ, the true and better Adam, son of God and son of man, who when tempted in the garden never yielded and never sinned. He who makes the many righteous brings us back to life again. Dying, he reversed the curse, then rising, crushed the serpent's head. Now, there are a couple of New Testament passages that corroborate these lyrics, showing how Jesus is the second Adam. But really, the most comprehensive passage is in Romans 5. Uh, Tony read part of that for us earlier. Uh, I'm going to read the slightly longer passage to you, Romans 5, 12 through 21, to put in context how Jesus is the second Adam, the better Adam for us. Romans 5, starting in verse 12, says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, of course, we know that one man is Adam, and death through sin... And so death spread to all men because all sin, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. 
But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of that grace of of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through the righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray before we dive into this. God, we can clearly see uh, the condemnation that is upon us all. Lord, even if we didn't have the revelation of your scripture, Lord, and the account of Adam's disobedience, God, we know it deep down. Lord, we know uh, that we are sinners. Lord, for we don't have to be taught how to, how to lie and cheat and steal. God, it is, it is in us. But God, we do have your revelation, and we see how... Uh, That disobedience of the first man became the disobedience of us all. Lord, how we inherit that sin nature. God, but you demand a perfect heart. And we cannot bring that to you. Lord, we stand condemned before you in our sin. Justly so, for you are righteous. And we have engaged in treason against you. And yet, God, you love us, and you demonstrated your great love to us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God, we thank you for the obedience of your Son. Lord, the obedience that accomplished our justification in our life. God, I pray that as we dwell upon all that that Adam is not for us, but all that Christ is for us, God, that we would rejoice that you love us. God, that you came to be our crucified, despised, incarnate, yet rejected sin bearer. Lord, but he is now our resurrected Savior. And he is coming again soon. So God, I pray that as we remember the first advent of Christ, as we look to the second advent of Christ, Lord, would you, you would renew our thankfulness for all that you've done for us. God, and we would long more and more for the day that he will come again. God, would you open our eyes to understand the truth of your word today, God, and may it not beat us down, but Lord, may it wonder at your love and your grace toward us, that we might give it away to those around us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So as that passage in Romans 5 and that verse uh, from the song mentioned, uh, today we're going to talk about Adam, Christ, the true and better Adam. Um, And of course, Adam was the first human That God created. We see that clearly in Genesis. Uh, That means that Adam is the biological father of all of us. Uh, He is all of our great, 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 add some greats, grandfather, right? And in Adam, because of Adam's sin, we all inherit a sin nature. Uh, Bryce has told us before that 
the, the sort of theological term for that is that Adam is our federal head. He is the first representative of humanity on this earth. And he passed down his sin nature to all of us. But in Christ, we have a better Adam, a better father. As Paul says, Adam was a type of the one to come. Now, we're only going to look at a few of these parallels between Adam and Jesus, but there's actually a lot of them that we can't spend all of our time on today. But I want to read a really cool list I found by a writer named G. Shane Morris. Um, He listed the parallels between Adam and Jesus. He said, The first Adam yielded to temptation in a garden. The last Adam beat temptation in a garden. The first Adam ate and a covenant was broken. The last Adam ate and a covenant was established. The first Adam was a man who sought to become like God. The last Adam was God who became a man. The first Adam was naked and received clothes. The last Adam had clothes but was stripped naked. The first Adam tasted death from a tree. The last Adam tasted death on a tree. The first Adam hid from the face of God. The last Adam begged God not to hide his face. The first Adam blamed his bride. The last Adam took the blame for his bride. The first Adam brought thorns and thistles. The last Adam wore thorns and thistles. The first Adam gained a wife when God opened man's side. The last Adam gained a wife when man opened God's side. The first Adam brought a curse. The last Adam became a curse. The first Adam was made immortal and chose to die. The last Adam was made mortal and chose to rise. The first Adam listened when the serpent said, take and eat. The last Adam told his followers, take and eat. And we could probably spend a full sermon examining each of those parallels because there's a lot in there. Uh, But today I want to look at three key parallels between Adam and the second Adam, Christ, that are central to our understanding of how Jesus is the better Adam, who accomplished for us all that Adam could not accomplish for us. So the first thing I want you to see today is that though Adam was disobedient, Christ was obedient. Paul says this clearly in Romans 5, 19. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Of course, one man, one man, or Adam and Jesus. Now, you know the story of Adam's disobedience, right? There's, there's not a whole lot of uh, scripture devoted to the story of Adam's life. Um, and mostly what we see is Adam's disobedience. I know it's a familiar story. I want to read it from uh, Genesis 3 because I think it will help us compare it uh, with Jesus' obedience. So let's read about Adam's disobedience in Genesis chapter 3. Again, a familiar story to us. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Let me stop there. Anytime you ask yourself that question, did God actually say, you need to know, that is the original lie of the devil. Don't question what God says. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees 
excuse me, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So God gives Adam and Eve one command there in the garden. And here we see their disobedience on full display. Adam and Eve disobey God and God comes. And the first thing that they did when confronted with their sin is what? They hid. How like us, right? We would rather try to hide in vain from the omnipresent God than admit our wrongdoing before him. Now what did he do next? He lied. He told God that he was hiding because he was naked. Even though he'd been naked the whole time, God made him like that. He knew full well the reason that he was hiding was because he had disobeyed God. Again, so much like us. You can see the, the seed of Adam's sin in us, right? We'd rather pile sin on top of sin in order to avoid dealing with that sin so often. And then what did Adam do? He hid, he lied, and then he shifted blame. He said, it was Eve, it wasn't my fault. So much like us, again, exactly our nature. We will do all manner of terrible things in order to maintain our own faulty self-perception of innocence when deep down we know the reality of our own sinfulness, just like Adam did. Now you can compare that familiar account of Adam's disobedience uh, with the obedience of Jesus. And, and really the whole account of Jesus' life as recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the, all accounts of Jesus' obedience because he was never disobedient. But one kind of specific parallel, I think, is when we see again uh, Satan show up. And he tempts Jesus in the wilderness and we can see the difference in the way that Jesus responded to Satan versus the way that Adam did. Matthew 4 says that Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now again, let me stop. Jesus didn't say, did God actually say? No, he said, it is written. That is the clear difference in the disobedience and the obedience. So whether or not you trust the word of God. 
Verse 5, Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And again, Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. I mean, can you see how drastically different these two accounts are? Both Adam and the second Adam were confronted with temptation by Satan. And in Adam's case, he doubted the word of God. And he succumbed to temptation. And in Jesus' case, he defeated temptation with the word of God. Now, we might be tempted to think that because Jesus was God incarnate, maybe he wasn't really tempted. Maybe he wasn't really hungry. But that's not what the Bible says. Hebrews says in Hebrews 4, 15, that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who was in every respect tempted as we are, yet without sin. So Jesus was indeed tempted, but he demonstrated perfect obedience every single time. In fact, even in his hour of greatest sorrow, right before his death in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus didn't succumb to what might have been the temptation to to turn back. He prayed to God and he said, not my will, but yours be done. Because that's what true obedience looks like. It's submitting to the Father's will, even when he knew that it would cost him everything. Now, we know that Jesus was completely sinless, that he lived his entire life without giving in to the temptation to disobey his Father's will. And we should be infinitely thankful for the obedience of Jesus because only a sinless and spotless lamb could offer himself in our place to pay the death penalty for our sins because he didn't have to pay the death penalty for his own sins because he had none. That's why he was able to die for us. But here we see how Jesus' obedience wasn't just in his outward actions, but his obedience was in his very heart. May we thank God that we have a Savior that indeed was tempted in every way as we are, and yet like Adam, he didn't question God's plan. He didn't think that maybe he knew better. Paul says that Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, it wasn't just Jesus' obedience in keeping God's law and in following God's commands that's so incredible, but it was his obedience even to death on a cross. This is why Paul says in Romans, by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. See, we are not made righteous by just the obedience of Jesus following the law, but by his obedience unto death. 
We cannot be made righteous by imitating Jesus' obedience. Now, we do have a great earthly example of what it looks like to obey God, uh, to, to, to be perfectly submissive to God's will. And it, Jesus is our example of, of what it means to obey. But we cannot be righteous, be made righteous by imitating the obedience of Jesus. One, because we couldn't do it even if we tried. But secondly, because there is none righteous, no, not one, save Jesus himself. It was the obedience of Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross that makes us righteous. It was his obedience to death on the cross that caused our sin to be transferred to him and his righteousness to be imputed unto us, and that is what makes possible our righteousness before God. So we should seek to be obedient to God, God's law, but not because we think, we think it can make us righteous, but because we have been declared righteous in Christ. Let's seek obedience, not because it can make us righteous, but because we already have a perfect righteousness that has been purchased for us by the only one who is perfectly obedient. Obedient even unto death on a cross in our place. Let us praise God for the second Adam who worked out a perfect righteousness for us that was imputed unto us when we trusted in Christ. Let's be thankful for the obedience that triumphed over the disobedience that Adam brought into the human race. So first we see the contrast between the disobedience of our federal head, Adam, and the head of the church, Christ. And we see the disobedience compared to the obedience. But secondly, today we see that Adam brought condemnation, whereas Christ brought justification. That's what Paul says in Romans 5.18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Now, we may be tempted to think that maybe it's unfair that the sin of Adam led to condemnation for all of humanity. I mean, why don't we get a clean slate like Adam did? Well, I think that scripture is clear that we inherit the sin nature as a result of Adam's sin. And so even if we think perhaps we could have done it differently than Adam, we don't get a clean slate ultimately because we already stand condemned before God because we are born into the condemned curse of Adam's race. We sang that earlier, that we're conceived in sin. We're, we're guilty and unclean as soon as we draw our infant breath. That echoes the words of the psalmist in Psalm 51. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So we already stand condemned because of the curse of Adam's sin that we are born into. And you know, frankly, it's... It doesn't bother me that much. I mean, it does because sin's a big deal. But, but like that truth in Scripture doesn't freak me out because it doesn't really take a lot of observation to see the sinfulness that we inherit. Toddlers don't have to be taught how to lie, right? They do it. They come by it honest. When Jesus came, he didn't have to pronounce condemnation of sin upon us. We already stood condemned before God. John 3 says this. It says that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. 
The light has come into the world. People love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And so if our condemnation was a result of inheriting Adam's sin nature, um, if that's not already clear to us, God then gave us the law, the law of Moses that reveals even more clearly the totality of our sinfulness. In 2 Corinthians 3, Paul calls the law that God gave to Moses, he calls it the ministry of condemnation and the ministry of death because it, it highlights how far we, we are from God's righteous standards. But then he compares that ministry of condemnation, the law of Moses, to the ministry of righteousness that is wrought by the Holy Spirit in the hearts of those who trust in Christ. 2 Corinthians 3, starting in verse 7, says, Now if the ministry of death carved in letters of stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze on Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. So we see that because of the sinful nature that we inherit through Adam's disobedience, we stand condemned before God as sinners. And we are deserving of his righteous wrath for our rebellion against him. And that we, we also can compare that, though, the condemnation that we have in Adam to what we have in Christ, which is justification. Romans 3 says, Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show the, his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Isn't that good news? God is the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What does, what does that mean? What does it mean that we are justified before God? Well, to use legal language, again, we already talked about how we are condemned before God. Well, we are not just accused of sin, but we are declared guilty of sin. And we already stand before God, our judge, guilty and condemned. But to be justified, we really don't have an equivalent for that in our legal system. It's not just to be declared not guilty, it is to be declared righteous, it's not as if we had never sinned, which is one way that people often describe justification. It's, no, 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 you did, and it's been paid for by somebody else, and you get what they had. It's to be declared righteous. Because Jesus took the death sentence we deserved, his righteousness is imputed to us, and we are declared right with God. And if we trust in what Christ has done for us, we stand before God clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And God then looks upon us 
with the same righteousness that he looks upon his son. That's what it means for us to be justified. We are made as right with God as his own son is. That's the glory of the gospel, church. Though we stand in full and fair condemnation before God because of our sin, if we have faith in what Jesus did for us, we stand in full acceptance as justified children. And as Romans 8 so gloriously reminds us, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. And as a result of that justification that we can only have through Christ, the last thing I want to show you today is that even though Adam brought death Christ brought life. 1 Corinthians 15 says that as, for as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. See, God promised this. He told Adam that if he disobeyed his command, he would surely die. Adam doubted that. He said, did God really say? But God proved it to be true. And as a result of Adam's sin, death entered this world, not only for humanity, but for all living things. All of creation became marred by the sting of death when sin entered the world. Each of us begins the slow march toward death the moment we take our first breath. And yet in Christ, death was defeated. Though death is the just penalty for sin that we all deserve, through the resurrection of Christ, we see that not even death has the final say. That same passage in 1 Corinthians 15 says, The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Not only that, but that same chapter says that when the perishable puts on the imperishable, when the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. In Adam's sin, as God said, we all surely will die. But through Christ's death and resurrection, we shall surely live and live forevermore. That same passage goes on, 1 Corinthians 15. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So though we are born into the image of Adam, we have his likeness, we have his sin nature, this man of dust, we can be born again through new life, through the man of heaven, the second Adam, Jesus Christ. 
And the life that he gives us can never be taken away. For he has given us life abundant and life that is forevermore. Today I'd like to end by reading a lesser known verse. I think we do sing it here. But a lesser known verse from my favorite Christmas song. Um, and honestly, probably the greatest hymn ever written, I think. Uh, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, written by Charles Wesley. Uh, there's a verse that not a lot of people sing. It says this. Adam's likeness, Lord, efface. That means erase. Stamp thy image in its place. Second Adam from above, reinstate us in thy love. Let us the, though lost, regain the inner life, the inner man. Excuse me, thee the life, the inner man. Oh, to all thyself impart, formed in each believing heart. This Advent, may this uh, verse be true for us. May God erase the stain of Adam's sinful likeness from us. May he replace it with the likeness of the second Adam as he reinstates us in his love and as he forms within each of us a believing heart. If you don't have a believing heart, pray that God would give you one. That he would replace your heart of stone with a heart of flesh. That he would replace the man of dust in you with the man of heaven. Let us remember that the song that the angels sang near Bethlehem to the shepherds is still good news of great joy. Let us look forward with great anticipation to celebrating all that Jesus did when he humbled himself, when he took on flesh, and when he came to live a life of perfect obedience, accomplishing our justification by his death and giving us everlasting life through his resurrection. Let's pray. God, you are so good to us. You are so good to us. Lord, though we have no righteousness of our own, in fact, we offer the opposite, Lord. We offer you filthy rags. Yet, God, you made a way to rescue us. God, it has always been your plan to redeem your people, God, but seeing it play out in, uh, in Scripture, God, and celebrating it anew, God, it causes me to want to worship you, O oh Lord. God, you were so good and gracious to us. God, though uh, we are born into the sinfulness of Adam's race, God, and we see, we see it clearly in our lives, God, if we're honest. God, though we are naturally uh, disobedient, Lord, and we stand condemned, deserving of the death uh, that sin brings, God, thank you for what Jesus did in his perfect obedience even unto death on the cross. God, in his perfect righteousness that accomplishes our justification, that makes us right before you, so you see us the same way you see him. God, and thank you for the life that he brings to us. God, thank you for the promise of Scripture that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Lord, for those of us who have tasted uh, the beauty of what you have done to justify us, God, who have trusted in the blood of Christ shed in our place, God, would you help us to uh, just wonder anew, Lord, and live our lives with the, implica- in the, with the full implications of what it means uh, to pray as Jesus did, Lord, not our will but yours. God, if, there's those, if there are those here who have never tasted what it means to trust in Jesus, Lord, who uh, feel the weight of the condemnation 
that they rightly deserve before you. God, I pray that they would understand what Jesus has done for them in taking on flesh and humbling himself to become a servant and in laying down his life and defeating the grave. God, and even if there aren't those here who have uh, never understood that, God, I pray that you would give us opportunities to talk about what Jesus has done. God, that it, we would be so enamored with what you have done for us uh, that it would naturally spill out of our mouths. God, that we wouldn't be able to talk about Christmas without talking about the beauty of what you have done for us. God, may Jesus not be lost in our celebrations this year. God, may, be, may he be at the forefront. Lord, not just in this season, Lord, but every day of our lives. Lord, let Christ be the center. For we know it's all about him. God, as we have the chance to respond to what we've heard from your word today, as we have the chance to prepare our hearts to celebrate the broken body and shed blood of Jesus, God, would you convict us of sin? Lord, would you cause us to be reconciled to one another? Or would you cause us to be a manifestation, Lord, a living example of your body here on earth? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.